Amen. Happy Father's Day, guys. Thankful for you all, the way you serve your families, the way you serve the church. I hope that you have a really good day today. If you have your Bible this morning, 2 Kings chapter 4 is where you need to go. 2 Kings chapter 4. Last week, we continued our look at the life and ministry of Elisha. That is a study that is likely to take us all the way through the summer. We'll see how it goes in the weeks ahead. Specifically, last week, we saw a great scene with Elisha and the widow who was completely desperate. This widow was completely desperate due to the death of her husband and the debt that she could not pay that was going to result in the enslavement of her two children. She, in her hour of desperation, cried out to Elisha for help. I argued last week that her cry out to Elisha is actually a cry to God for help. And God answered that cry with this miraculous provision of oil that she then sold to pay her debt and even had extra to live on. In that text last week, we saw the importance of turning to the Lord in our hour of need. We have all kinds of needs, and there are all kinds of places we could turn. We must turn to the Lord. In that text, we saw the importance of the obedience of faith. I told you that trust produces obedience, and obedience is the demonstration of that trust. As Elisha told this woman to go gather these pots, pour out the oil, all of that seemed strange, and yet because she trusted, she obeyed. And that's what it looks like in our lives as well. Faith and obedience are always traveling together. We also talked about the Lord's provision, how he gives us what we need. Not what we want, not always what we think we need, but he gives us what we truly need because he loves us, he is a good father, and we can trust him. And then finally, we talked about the gospel, that how this whole story is actually a small picture of the big gospel, about how we have nothing, as Jason just said, and he gives us everything in Christ. In Christ, the Father provided the cost to purchase our freedom and to give us life-sustaining provision. That is a gift that we do not deserve. And we receive that gift by trusting in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And our trust in Christ is evidenced by our obedience to Christ. The old song says, trust and obey. There is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And We want to be people who trust and obey. This week we're going to see a story that may seem way different than last week, but it is actually very similar. And I want us to have last week's story of that widow and her two children who were in peril in our minds as we study the story today. We're going to cover a ton of ground today. In fact, this sermon will cover more scripture than any sermon I have preached in a long time. And we are on a tight timeline to do it because we have to get you guys out, do some cleaning, and get the next group in. So the way we're going to approach it today is, is as three sections. I'll read a section, teach through it, read another section, teach through it, and then finally read the third section and teach through it. And then we'll make some applications at the end. So let's pray before we get into the text. Pray with me. Father, help us to see all that you want us to see today, all that you have for us to see today. We thank you for your gracious compassion toward all kinds of people who find themselves in all kinds of need, and we are needy. We admit that we are so needy, and we trust you to provide for us 
as you have in the past in our lives, as you promised to in your word, and as you have proven to in stories like this. We ask you to give us faith to trust you in our time of need. And pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to get from chapter 4, verse 8, through chapter 4, verse 37 today. So that's a lot of ground. First section is verses 8 through 17, though. And we're going to talk here about this miraculous birth. So start reading with me in chapter 4, verse 8. It says, Now there came a day when Elisha passed over Shunem, where there was a prominent woman, and she persuaded him to eat food. And so it was, as often as he passed by, he turned in there to eat food. She said to her husband, Behold, now I perceive that this is a holy man of God passing by us continually. Please let us make a little walled-up chamber and let us set a bed for him there and a table and a chair and a lampstand. And it shall be when he comes to us that he can turn in there. One day he came there and turned into the upper chamber and rested. Then he said to Gehazi, his servant, Call this Shunammite. And when he had called her, she stood before him. He, He said to him, Say now to her, Behold, you have been careful for us with all of this care. What can I do for you? Would you be spoken of for the would you be spoken for to the king or to the captain of the army? And she answered, I live among my own people. So he said, What then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, Truly she has no son, and her husband is old. He said, Call her. When he had called her, she stood in the doorway, then he said, At this season next year you will embrace a son. And she said, No, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. Verse 17 says, the woman conceived and bore a son at that, ne- at that season next year, as Elisha had said to her. I want you to see that this story is linked to the one from last week. The transitional word now or one day or and in some translations is interesting, but what we see is that it's not a major break. There's not a massive change of subject. It's as if one story is flowing right into the other. And in biblical narrative... When that happens, we need to ask why. Why would the author tell these two stories together like this? Why would he tell one story right after another just like this? And so I want us to think about that for a minute here. When we meet the woman in the story this week, we find her to be very different from the widow in the story last week. Her situation does not seem to be desperate. She actually seems to be quite comfortable, right? Notice she has a husband. She has a husband who cares for her. Notice that she is called prominent, or in some translations, wealthy. Notice that she is super generous, providing food for the prophet when he passes by. Notice, even beyond food, that she has such means that her family can construct a guest room just for the prophet when he comes to town. Like, construct a whole separate room just for this prophet when he comes to town. And notice that when Elisha offers to say a good word for her to powerful people, she essentially says, there's no need for that. These are my people. These are my people. Bottom line is this. This lady is somebody. Unlike the woman from last week, this lady is somebody. She seems to have plenty of resources at her disposal. She's totally different from the desperate widow we saw last week. But she still has a need. In fact, her real need is almost identical to the need of the woman, the widow, from last week. That lady was about to lose her children. 
This lady has no children in the first place. And here's the point that I want you to get. We are all needy. Whether we are rich or poor, whether we are stable or unstable, whether we are under-resourced or over-resourced, we are all needy. And the Lord cares about all of our needs. These stories, when we take them together, teach us about the Lord's gracious compassion toward and his gracious provision for all kinds of people with all kinds of needs. In other words, it's not as if the Lord is just gracious and compassionate and providing for the poor, the widow, who has no resources. He is also providing for the needs of the rich and the prominent and the wealthy because we are all ultimately needy. And the way the Lord provides for this lady's needs is he gives her a child. And almost from a biblical perspective, more than a child, he gives her a son, an heir to this family empire, this uh, legacy that, that her family has built. So here's the big lesson. That's the big lesson from the first section of the text. These stories teach us about the Lord's gracious compassion toward and his gracious provision for all kinds of people with all kinds of needs. But before we move on out of this section into the rest of the story, there are a few smaller lessons that we need to learn from this first part. And the first one is this. We see hospitality on display big time in this text in a beautiful way. It's actually the way it's supposed to work within the church. This lady opens her home. She shares her resources. She goes the extra mile. She is gracious in her provision of hospitality for the prophet. And this is an expectation for the people of God all throughout scriptures. All throughout the word of God, we are called as his people to pursue hospitality, to be hospitable toward one another, to welcome strangers in, and certainly our spiritual family. Your pastors are absolutely pumped that we're able to gather like this, like to be in a room together like this. No doubt we're we're pumped about that. But we are a little bit bummed that this season where we had planned to be encouraging these small 10-person gatherings in homes, we're we're a little bit bummed that that was cut short because we really felt like that was going to help develop our hospitality as a body. And don't get me wrong, we're not like crying in the other room about this. Um, And don't get me wrong, we can still pursue that kind of hospitality. Especially since we're not able at this point to resume all of our normal gatherings, we can still be doing those kind of things in our homes. So we learn a lesson about hospitality in the way this lady provides hospitality, and we also learn a lesson about hospitality in the way Elisha receives it. Elisha is gracious in his reception of her hospitality. He gladly and humbly accepts what she has to offer to her, and he tries to turn it back toward her with his offer to say a good word to some powerful people on her behalf, and ultimately this provision of the son, he is saying, thank you for this, and I will return the favor in kind. And we need to be be better at that. Like as the people of God, and as humans in general, we need to be better at receiving such gracious hospitality. I'll give you a story that happened a few years ago that will illustrate this from the negative side of things. A few years ago, we did a little project at the 4th of July uh, gathering at the fairgrounds where we gave away hot dogs. I don't know if you remember this. Some of you are involved in this. We, we cooked and gave away hundreds of hot dogs. And I remember very vividly uh, standing in the back of my truck and uh, or somebody's truck and this little girl who I know had our already had two hot dogs and was eating the third hot dog that we had given. 
She came up to me with a mouthful of hot dog and she said, these buns are stale. Don't be that kid. Don't be that kid who receives a gift from somebody with no strings attached, with absolutely no strings attached and say, these buns are stale. Like say, thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you for going the extra mile to provide this for me. And church, we want to do this especially with each other, to be gracious in our reception of other people's hospitality. The other thing I want us to see before we move on from this first section is this character Gehazi, or however you say his name. Cooper, Cooper corrected me earlier, and I can't get it in my head. I want you to put a pin in this guy. Just remember him. He's going to be a character that will develop over the next several weeks in the text. You're going to get to know him more. He is basically, at this point, Elisha's right-hand man, his servant, maybe even his apprentice. He may be unto Elisha at this point as Elisha was unto Elijah earlier, following him around, learning the trade, learning what it's like. And he seems to be on the right track for now. Like he's the one who says, Elisha's like, what are we going to do for this lady? And he's the one that kind of comes forward with this idea of she doesn't have a son and her husband's super old. He seems to be on the right track for now, but we will see how it goes in the weeks to come. So that's the first section. And the big lesson is about the Lord's gracious compassion toward and his gracious provision for All kinds of people with all kinds of needs. Look at the next section, starting in verse 18 through verse 28. It says, When the child was grown, the day came that he went out to his father, to the reapers. He said to his father, My head, my head. And he said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. When he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her lap until noon and then died. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, Please send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may run to the man of God and return. He said, Why will you go to him today? It's neither new moon nor Sabbath. And she said, It will be well. Then she saddled a donkey and said to her servant, Drive and go forward and do not slow down the pace for me unless I tell you. So she went and came to the man of God on Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her at a distance, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Behold, there is the Shunammite. Please run now to meet her and say to her, Is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with the child? She answered, It is well. Then she came to the man of God to the hill. She caught hold of his feet, and Gehazi came near to push her away. But the man of God said, Let her alone, for her soul is troubled within her. And the Lord has hidden this from me and has not told me. Then she said, did I ask for a son from my Lord? Did I not say, do not deceive me? In this text, verse 17 through 20 are a nauseating roller coaster of emotion. Like follow it just in those few verses. In verse 17, the Lord has given her a son. Her husband is old. She's without a child. And the Lord has given her a son. Doesn't get much better than that, right? And look at verse 18. The boy is growing up. He's still a little kid for sure, maybe about Asher's size. But he's able to get out of the house. He's able to tag along behind his dad. Do you kind of get that picture? Isn't it sweet that dad's out in the field, he's doing the work, and the little boy is following his dad along, tagging along. It's a beautiful picture of what fatherhood, childhood look like. And verse 19 is so relatable, right? This little kid is tagging along with his dad at work. 
And then he says, oh, my head, my head, my head hurts, dad. And, and the dad's reaction is super relatable, isn't it? I have somebody take him to his mom. I'm, I'm busy here at work. One of you guys take him back home, let him sit on his mom's lap. But look at verse 20. He's dead. It, it all changes so fast. It's nauseating to read 17, 18, 19, and 20. That's how life goes. Sometimes you don't see it coming. Everything seems to be going along just fine. The Lord has given you everything you ever wanted. And then in an instant, in the blink of an eye, everything changes. Some of you have experienced that. Some of you are experiencing that. And I want you to know you are not alone. And I want to try to explain everything that's going on in those moments. I cannot answer all of your why questions. Why did this happen? Where did this come from? What is the purpose of this? can't answer those questions. I've got plenty of those questions myself. What I can tell you is that in your hour of desperation, you can turn to the Lord. You can turn to the Lord. Many of you have. Many of you will. This lady did. She turned to the Lord when it all came crashing down. She does sure some strange things here. But all of those strange things that she does seem to indicate to me, at least, the depth of her faith. Her logic seems to me to be the same as Abraham's logic when he took Isaac up the hill to sacrifice him as the Lord had directed. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. I love this because the author of Hebrews, hundreds, hundreds of years later, gives us insight under the inspiration of the Spirit, into what was going on in Abraham's mind as he makes his way up the mountain. Look at the logic. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and when he received the promises, was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. He considered, verse 19, that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he had also received him back as a type. The logic is this. Abraham's logic is, the Lord gave me this boy. He won't just take him now. The Lord made promises through this boy. He's not just going to take him away now. And that seems to be a little bit of what's going on in her mind. When she says to the prophet, did, did I ask for a son? Like, I, I didn't come to you begging for a son. And the Lord miraculously provided this son just, just to take him away now. She seems to have faith that that's not the end of the story. I want you to notice in this section that she runs to Elisha as fast as she can. And again, we need to understand this, especially in the Old Testament setting under the Old Covenant. This is what it looks like to run to the Lord for help. She is not just running to Elisha, a man. She is running to the Lord. You go to the one who speaks the word of the Lord. That's Elisha. You go to the one who acts with the power of the Lord. That's Elisha. And so she is running in her desperation unto the Lord. And that's what we must do as well. It's strange to me that she indicates to everyone other than Elisha that everything's okay. 
Her husband says, why are you in such a hurry? It's well. Gehazi says, is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with your son? It is well. And then she falls at the feet of Elisha, completely broken. And Elisha recognizes her soul is troubled over all of this. There's a lot of debate about what's going on and why she says everything is okay. I I think it is because she has deep faith. It's like we sang a minute ago. It's like Horatio Spann, who wrote that song, right? Who wrote that song on a boat, having just gotten the news that his child had died, right? And on a boat, gets a telegraph that his wife also died. Something like that. Just tragedy after tragedy. And he says, when sorrows sea billows roll, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well with my soul. I think that's part of what this lady has going on. That she says in her heart, I don't know what's going on here, but it will be well. I just need to hear from the Lord on this matter. big idea in this section is that in her desperation, in pain, she turns to the Lord in faith. She trusts him. In her desperation and her pain, she turns to the Lord in faith with deep trust in him, and we must do the same. When life crashes down, when we get to verse 20 and the boy is dead, we turn to the Lord. That's the big idea in this section. One other thing to notice in this section, though, is the finiteness or the limitedness of Elisha the prophet. This is an interesting thing to me. Elisha can't take care of himself. In this whole story, we see Elisha's weakness. We see his limitedness. Somebody else got to feed him. Somebody else got to provide him a place to stay. And in this section in particular... He doesn't know what the problem is. It's not as if the Shunammite is coming up the road and he's like, the boy's dead. I knew it was going to happen when I made the promise. The boy's dead. Here's the situation. He is at a total loss. In fact, he articulates it to Gehazi. He says, her soul is anguished within her and the Lord withheld it from me. He doesn't know. He He didn't know the child had died. He's a prophet of God and he didn't know that the child was dead. He didn't know when he made the promise. It's not as if when he made the promise that the Lord will give you a son that he knew that when the boy was just a lad, he would die in his mother's arms. Elisha didn't know any of that. In fact, we see his finiteness on display in the next section when he's like, "Uh, I don't know what to do. Gehazi, take the staff, put it on the kid's face. Elisha is limited. Elisha is finite. And I'm so thankful that the the word of God tells us that because what that does is it puts the focus on the Lord and not Elisha. This is a story about the power of Yahweh, not the power of Elisha. Elisha's great. He's awesome. I love Elisha. But it is Yahweh who is at work in this story. And we see Elisha's weakness all over the place in this text. So in her desperation, this is, this is section number two, in her desperation and her pain, she turns to the Lord in faith. She trusts him. Look at the third section. This is crazy. 29 through 37 says, Then he said to Gehazi, Gird up your loins and take my staff in your hand and go on your way. If you meet any man, do not salute him. If anyone salutes you, do not answer him. And lay my staff on the lad's face. The mother of the lad said, As the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will not leave you. 
And he arose and followed her. Then Gehazi passed on before them and laid the staff on the lad's face, but there was no sound or response. So he returned to meet him and told him, The lad has not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, behold, the lad was dead and laid on his bed. So he entered and shut the door behind both of them and prayed to the Lord. And he went up and lay on the child, put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands, and he stretched himself on him. And the flesh of the child became warm. Verse 35 says, Then he returned and walked in the house once back and forth and went up and stretched himself on him. And the lad sneezed seven times and the lad opened his eyes. He called Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. So he called her and when she came to him, he said, Take up your son. Then she went in and fell at his feet and bowed herself to the ground and she took up her son and went out. We've got this miraculous birth We've got this tragic death, and now we've got this amazing resurrection. And this all, once again, as as nearly everything that Elisha does, raises my curiosity about the mechanics of all of this. Some of it is just super strange, right? This idea of take my staff and put it on his face. the, The detail of him stretching out on the boy. When we saw Elijah raise the widow's son... It simply says that he stretched himself on the child. But here we've got all this detail about his mouth to his mouth, his eyes to his eyes, his hands to his hands, like greater detail about him stretching himself out on the boy. Did you notice that that he did that once and like something started to happen, but he's not really alive yet, and Elisha walks away, gets in the house and walks back and forth. I read some stuff about that. That's like pacing the floor like we do when when we're anxious and frustrated or uncertain like he's back and forth in the house and then he goes up and does it again the sneezing seven times that's weird right it's just just all the mechanics of it all is strange and i'm curious about it maybe we'll get to ask that little guy when we get to heaven but here's the big idea i want you to see the lord raised that kid from the dead and gave him back to his mother the lord raised that kid from the dead and gave him back to his mother he doesn't always do that, right? At least he doesn't always do that in the here and now. He doesn't always do that, but he can. And he does. And he has. In a variety of ways. God does stuff like this today. But listen to me clearly. That boy will die again. And so this whole story, as incredible as it is, makes us long for something more. Right? Is it the ultimate win that this boy who had physically died is raised to live a few more years only to physically die again later? Or does this story make us say, that's awesome, but is there anything better than this? Isn't there something better than this? And the answer is, yes, sir, there is something better than this. Maybe if you're on social media, you saw last night I posted an image uh, uh, of the triple jump. Are you familiar with the triple jump? It's a track and field event where the guy runs down, and he doesn't just jump into the sand. He jumps once, he jumps twice, and then he jumps into the sand. Well, I want us to do that with this text today, triple jump. The first jump is this, from Elijah to Elisha, there's a jump. And that first jump, by the way, happens on the same foot. You jump off your right foot, and you land on your right foot. It's close parallel. Elijah raised the widow's son. 
Elisha raises a boy from the dead. Elisha is the new Elijah, right? There's all this parallel, double portion of the spirit, carrying on the same task, doing like much of the same stuff with greater detail in greater quantity. Elisha is the new Elijah. That's the first jump. The next jump, which happens onto the other foot, is, is from Elisha to the Lord Jesus Christ, who when we read in the Gospels, raises people from the dead. He raises the widow's son that Dylan read about in Luke chapter 7. He raises Jairus' daughter in Mark chapter 5. And he raises his buddy Lazarus from the grave in John chapter 11. And when we read about those accounts, it's not a big production. Like we don't see Jesus stretching himself over we don't see Jesus making multiple attempts. Well, he's sort of alive now and come back again. Maybe he's alive. We don't see Jesus weak like we see Elijah and Elisha. We don't see Jesus appealing to an authority outside of himself either. We don't see Jesus appealing to an authority higher than himself. Elisha in the story prayed to God. Jesus is God. And he acts with the power of God to raise people from the dead with a touch. Touch that widow's son and he rises from the dead. With a word, he speaks to Lazarus and life comes to that dead man. Jesus is better than Elijah. Jesus is better than Elisha. That's the second jump. Here's the third jump though. Jesus doesn't just have the power to raise people from physical death. It gets better than that. Jesus has power that goes beyond physicality to give spiritual life to those who are spiritually dead. He himself rose from the dead. After dying on the cross for our sins, he conquered sin, our sin. He conquered death, our death. And he beat the hell that we deserve. Hell is defeated in Christ. And through his glorious resurrection, he offers us resurrection to eternal life. Get this? This is the, that last jump, which is the, the, the big one, is that Jesus is not just about providing people life from the dead only to die again. Jesus is the one who can give life to the dead to never die again. He can give life that is eternal, life that never ends. Not just back from the dead to life only to die again. Not just victory over physical death, but he gives us life that never ends. And he teaches us about that at the grave of his buddy Lazarus. When he's about to provide for Lazarus physical life, he speaks of eternal life. Listen to it in John chapter 11 or read it on the screen. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, listen to this, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. 
He's got to be talking about something bigger than coming out of the grave there, right? And then he says to this grieving sister, do you believe this? Because that's the critical element in the whole matter, right? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus, only Jesus, can give life eternal? And he gives it by grace through faith, by believing, trusting, depending upon him. So, when we zoom way out from this text, I see three lessons Two small ones and one big one. Small one, number one, turn to the Lord in your time of need. We're needy. He cares for us. He meets our needs. Number two, pursue hospitality. Be gracious in your provision of hospitality and in your reception of hospitality. But let's circle back to number one and make that bigger. Our greatest need is forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to a holy God. And the Lord provides that through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. So repent of your sins, trust in Jesus Christ, and experience life that is eternal, never-ending, and glorious. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we are thankful for your gracious compassion toward and your gracious provision for all kinds of needy people. And we are a group that is varied in our access to resources, in our physical security, in our prominence in the community. We vary in this room. But we all need one thing. Forgiveness of sins reconciliation to you, the holy God, creator and judge of all things. And we thank you that you have provided for forgiveness and reconciliation through the death, burial, and resurrection of your son. For those of us who have received this great gift, help us to rejoice in it in these moments as we sing. And for those who have not, I pray that you will make yourself known to them today as the holy and righteous judge of the universe. Make themselves known to them today as sinners who deserve the wrath of God. And show them your son dying as their substitute. And we pray that you give them faith to trust in Christ and repentance to turn away from sin. And that you bring life to dead men life that is eternal. For your own glory, we pray these things in Christ's name.